0: at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science podcast for March 5th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the sister journals. First up, online news editor David Grimm talks with me about an ancient Egyptian pet cemetery dating back to the second century BCE, or maybe a little bit before, and what this cemetery can teach us about animal-human relations way back in time. Then I talk with researcher Deepan Ghosh about color vision in eyeless worms. Somehow, the tiny roundworm C. elegans has been detecting color without eyes. First up this week, we have online news editor David Grimm. He's here to talk about what looks to be the oldest pet cemetery anywhere. Hi, Dave. Hey, sir. This is a, I guess, two thousand plus year old cemetery. Where exactly is it?
1: So this is in the town or the ancient city of Berenike, which was a, a Roman. It was in southeastern Egypt, as right along the Red Sea. So it's technically in ancient Egypt, but by this time the Romans had taken over. So the Romans were sort of running things, at least in this part of the world.
0: What kind of pets did these people have?
1: Mostly cats. In fact, in this new study, they've got about 600 individuals that they've removed from the cemetery so far. And the vast majority, more than 90%, are cats. About 5% are dogs, and the rest are a
0: handful of monkeys. So it seems like it's a cat city. <laughs> These people <laughs> had a lot of cats. And how do we know they're pets? How do we know they didn't just like, I don't know, do something terrible to cats?
1: Well, see so that's the big question here, because, you know, this find was initially reported a couple of years ago when the team only had about 100 bodies they had recovered. Some of the animals had fractures that appeared to have healed. They appeared to be buried individually. No evidence of sacrifice. there were no mummies as we usually associate with with ancient Egypt, which is also very sort of religious and sacrificial in nature often and so it seemed to be actual burials that they were seeing, and now that they 've got about five hundred more bodies to look at, and they 've done a much more detailed analysis of the bones. We're seeing evidence that these animals seem to have been interred gently and in the sleep-like position. A lot of them are buried with grave goods. They're covered with textiles or they're covered with vases to form these kind of sarcophagi. A lot of the cats are wearing collars. And so there's all these little signs that seem to suggest that these animals were buried with care and that they were buried when they died, not that, that they were killed to be buried.
0: Right. This is an in- important point that you bring up that they have a veterinarian on the team and they could say these animals healed for something and then from something and lived longer, like you mentioned, the fractures. And then the way they died, they were old. Some of them didn't have teeth.
1: Right. Especially the dogs. The dogs seem to have lived to older age. There was one dog that was about 10 years old, which is even old for a dog now and was certainly old for a dog 2,000 years ago. The cats seem to be a lot younger. Uh, The authors speculate that could be because there may have been a lot of transmissible diseases. You're talking about a very a bustling port city with lots of people, lots of animals, also lots of stuff moving around. And if there were a lot of cats, especially a lot of roaming cats, you could imagine disease transmitting pretty frequently between them. So the cats tend to be younger in the graveyard. The dogs tend to be a little bit older.
0: The most surprising thing here is that they were cared for in their life and then also in their death.
1: Right. you know, Again, we're seeing, this team sees a lot of signs of fractures, both in the cats and the dogs, broken legs. The dogs, a lot of signs of disease, joint problems, cancer, things like that. And for all these, you would expect if you had an animal with broken bones, either that animal is just going to be left to die, or maybe you're going to kill it. But a lot of these injuries seem to have healed. And a lot of these dogs, especially with these serious diseases, seem to have lived with the diseases. And the only way any of that could have happened is if somebody was taking care of these animals. Somebody was sheltering them, was feeding them, was really protecting them. And again, that really gets to this idea that there's some sort of emotional attachment between the people and these animals.
0: Yeah. And that's hard to prove looking back so far in time.
1: Yeah. It's really hard, You know, especially when we have these burials, it's hard to infer just what this relationship was. But when you see this type of care, it is, does seem to be strongly indicative that people had some sort of nothing that you can't say that these pets were treated like family.
0: They could have had jobs, right? They could have been rat catchers.
1: Exactly. And there's other possibilities. You know, in fact, one of the people I talked to who was not affiliated with the team said, well, you know, maybe they were cared for, but maybe they were also valued as important working animals. I mean, you're talking about a port city, so you probably have lots of rats coming in on ships. And if so, cats would be very prized as vermin control. Dogs, I mean, it's kind of gross to say, but you got a big city, you don't really potentially have a very advanced sewage system. Mm -hmm. So you got a lot of waste, human waste, other types of waste on the streets. Dogs would have been really important for cleaning that up, potentially also for guarding homes. And so it's possible that these animals may have been valued emotionally, but also may have been valued as working animals as well.
0: Wow. I know you said that this find is, you know, a couple of years old. This is not the first time this has been reported, but that what's really changed is that, you know, with the veterinarian involved, with the causes of death, you can say these are animals that are cared for. Did you think that the experts were convinced of this as well?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the experts who was a bit dismissive of the findings a couple of years ago and thought, you know, one thing we didn't mention is that this cemetery was found underneath a Roman trash pile, an ancient Roman trash pile. And so this expert's... uh, initial opinion was, well, this is just part of the trash pile. These are just animals that were thrown away as as sort of rubbish. But now she is convinced with all this new data that this was indeed a bona fide pet cemetery. A couple other folks i talked to also are convinced this was some sort of cemetery. So this really does look to be the oldest and largest pet cemetery we know of. Now others may come to light in future years, but it does seem to be swaying the experts right now.
0: You know, is this an opportunity to look at where these cats came from with the genetics? Like, could they do some of that kind of work and figure out what these cats look like and their evolutionary history?
1: Well, it's a great question because, you know, with both cats and dogs, there's a lot of mysteries surrounding exactly when they were domesticated, where they were domesticated. Here, we're talking for cats and dogs several several thousand years after domestication, but still, the cats in ancient Egypt is a really important point for them because from ancient Egypt they sort of spread out throughout the world. There's this feeling that cats may have been different sizes when they were initially domesticated.
0: Wait, Dave, smaller or bigger? Smaller
1: and bigger. So, so actually, uh, I don't get into this in the story, but there's actually they actually found two different sizes of cats at the cemetery: relatively smaller cats, relatively bigger cats. They don't know why this is the case. All of this could potentially be addressed with genetic analysis. Unfortunately, Egypt is very protective about anything that's dug up there. And so it's very, very hard to do any sort of sampling on these specimens. And so genetic analysis may be a long way off.
0: Wow, that's cool. It seems like it would be a really big sample. Like 500 cats from you know the same couple hundred years span might tell you a lot about what was going on with cat populations in the area at that time.
1: Right. This could be a really important treasure trove of genetic data. And also, researchers can also sample bones to figure out diet and things like that. And uh, that's also not currently possible.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the online news editor for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. The tiny roundworm C. elegans has been studied top to bottom for decades, but somehow its ability to detect colors has been overlooked. Next up, I talk with researcher Deepan Ghosh about the find. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org/news, scroll down a little bit and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. This Week in Science, Deepan Ghosh and colleagues published a paper on color detection in C. elegans, tiny worms without eyes. He's here to talk about how something eyeless can see color and how they figured it out. Hi, Deepan.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, sure. This is one of my uh, favorite types of research finds. We're learning something about a model organism like C. elegans, which has been studied top to bottom for decades. We know so much about them, the number of cells in their bodies. They were the first multicellular organism to have their genome sequenced. And yet here is something new. Was this a surprise to you when you first observed it? (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) This project has been just one surprise after another, which is exhilarating, but also challenging because there wasn't much to go off of, you know?
0: Right. It was already known that C. elegans could detect light because they don't like it and they want to get away from it, I guess. Why would detecting color be useful for them?
2: At least what we've shown, these C. elegans could be using the color information of the bacteria that they're on to determine whether they should stay on the bacteria or whether they should leave and possibly find better bacteria.
0: Is that because they eat bacteria or are there certain bacteria that are damaging?
2: Both. The bacteria that we started with in the paper is a pathogenic bacterium called Pseudomonas ruginosa, which are bad for the worms, but it actually takes them time to learn that it's bad for them. So that's actually something, a general concept that I find super interesting. Like how do these animals sense that this pathogenic bacteria that they're surrounded by and eating is or will be bad for them? And the thrust of this project was asking whether the color of the bacteria informed that avoidance decision.
0: Because there could be chemical cues, something akin to a smell or a flavor that's like, don't eat this, it's bad for you.
2: Absolutely. And so color would be yet another channel or yet another piece of information that worms could use when making that decision.
0: It does seem like it would be the bottom of the list, though, if you were investigating different <laughs> options because they don't have eyes. So, you know, how did you come to the conclusion that color was important for this this avoidance?
2: Yeah, I guess a, a series of experiments that we go through and through the paper, we start with C. elegans' avoidance of Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which secretes colorful pigments. We isolate colorful pigment that Pseudomonas makes and secretes, and we find that Light can change how worms interact with that particular pigmented toxin. But like you were saying, the pigment is not just colorful, it is also toxic. So something we had to do was dissociate the two and test whether is it the color, is it the toxicity that led to this avoidance? And we found that it was in fact both Uh, worms were assessing both the toxic nature and the color of piocyanin as they're deciding whether to avoid this food. But because we found that color was a component of this decision, we then started moving into testing the effects of changing the color of light and uh, seeing how that affects the worms foraging decisions.
0: Were you able to determine what colors were important?
2: We've identified some colors that worms seem to, I guess, dislike more than others, is maybe one way of putting it, although perhaps not completely correct. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that we did in this work was we tested wild C. elegans strains. So, C. elegans family members, so to speak, from all over the world, like Hawaii, California, Madagascar, England, whatever. And so these worms have been exposed to and adapted to different environments over time. And other labs have done tremendous work in like finding them, collecting, maintaining, and then sequencing the genomes of all of these wild strains. And it turns out that the color sensitivity in general varies substantially across the wild strains. So it's possible that Sensitivity to specific colors might offer some ecologically relevant information to worms that depending on what environment they are adapted to and, you know, most frequently engage with.
0: It's really interesting because, you know, these are these ultimate lab animals. And yet it's so important to know what their environment is like, or at least what that can do to what you're seeing in the lab.
2: Exactly. A curious result that we got was that the laboratory strain is actually less sensitive to specific colors than some of the wild strains that we tested.
0: They're just like, you're not going to give me poison. I'm okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they've been coddled for so long or something like that.
0: Well, let's talk about what that light is interacting with on the worm. They don't have eyes. So, what exactly is happening that is letting them know that light is near them, that this color is near them?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's what we're continuing to explore now. Well, what our work tells us is that there are many genes actually in the worm that contribute to color sensitivity. What was an initial surprise was that two of the genes that, in particular, that we identified first that contribute to this color dependent foraging behavior are what we call evolutionarily conserved. And they're involved in many diverse, important functions in a variety of animals, including humans, people have actually shown that these two genes, or at least the versions of these genes that exist in mammals, are involved in helping cells respond to stress. And in the case of these two genes, even stress caused by damaging ultraviolet light. So I think our current working theory is that specific colors somehow elicit some Stress. Uh, Maybe it causes some damage. It causes some stress that the worms are sensitive to. And it's these stress response pathways that get activated upon this stress or damage that worms use
0: to get that behavior. Exactly. Exactly. In our eyes, in animal eyes that we know about, there's a protein that can react to light, different proteins, different frequencies. And you kind of have this like, light detector. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening here.
2: No, you're absolutely right. Uh, Worms don't have those opsin genes. Those genes are called opsins and worms just don't have them. And so that's why this was so surprising that they're able to discriminate different spectra, the colors of light in their environment, despite lacking these things that evolution has shown us can be attuned to specific frequencies, like you were saying. All in all, it's very surprising. It's interesting, though, that our work does suggest that worms could have adapted evolutionarily conserved molecular machinery for color sensitivity in that we do think it's possible that our findings could generalize to other animals or even tissues that sense light, but don't possess these classic molecules required for vision, per se, like opsins. So this could open up another I guess, avenue for exploration of seeing how these other non-traditional ways in which light can be sensed and processed.
0: Is there any location that you can say this is happening on the body of the worm? Is there a specific cell that is engaged in this or is that still a little bit of a mystery?
2: It's still a little bit of a mystery. I guess what I'm currently thinking is that light could have a systemic effect on the worm in its entirety, but that there are specific cells that are attuned to it more so than others. And these cells would be the ones driving the color discrimination behaviors.
0: Do you have a candidate for the light interacting molecule?
2: We do present two genes that we've shown to be required for this behavior. I think it's unlikely that those two have inherently light sensitive functions. I think it's more likely that they operate in a pathway that is spectrally sensitive. Exactly.
0: Wow. Interesting puzzle. Are you going to see other colors? What what are you going to look for next in this system?
2: One, we're working on more clearly defining the range of colors that C. elegans could be sensitive to. Second, working on exactly what we were getting at, which is the cells and molecules required for color discrimination. And I am interested in the ecology of this a bit, although in our laboratory setting, it is a bit extracted from how you would find these worms wiggling around in the wild. But there are a lot of different microbial pigments. And one thing that I find curious is, how sensitive are worms to other microbial pigments that they might also naturally encounter?
0: It makes me wonder too about when people are doing these lab experiments with animals and they don't know that there's something in the environment that they're interacting with. People have been putting, you know, what if they've been putting them in blue bins or orange bins or whatever? They've been introducing a color that they, that's aversive.
2: I agree completely. And that is one of the fun and challenging parts of behavioral work in general is that you don't exactly know what the variables are and you just try to do the most controlled experiments as possible. And sometimes you're extremely surprised by a variable that you'd never even considered before.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Deepan. Oh, thank you. Deepan Ghosh is a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. You can find a link to the paper we discussed and a related insight at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. That's podcast with an S at the end. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice?